From Elizabeth Warren to former President Trump, actors on both the political left and right show increasing willingness to expand the role of government in the country's economic affairs. Skepticism of free markets, long confined to the left, is now in vogue across the political spectrum, fueling a renewed interest in industrial policy and trade protectionism. Samuel Gregg, a distinguished fellow in political economy at the American Institute for Economic Research and an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute, pushes back against these trends and what he calls state capitalism. Greg joins Brent to discuss his recent book, The Next American Economy, which is a forceful defense of free markets and the moral and historical foundations of economic policy in the broader context of American values and history. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Samuel Gregg, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure entirely. I'm really excited to get into your book. I've followed you uh, from a distance for a long time. It's a great honor and pleasure to finally get a chance to meet you. Uh, so tell us first about Samuel Gregg. Uh, how did you become who you are today? What were the major influences in your development? Who were the big um, figures in your life that helped to shape your um, your vocational journey? Well, thanks for that. Uh I'm, as you can probably guess by my voice, not American by birth. I'm actually Australian by birth, and uh, I grew up in Australia. I grew up in the 1980s, which was a time in which the country went through major economic changes, moving away from what was essentially a type of closed, managed economy to one which was uh, essentially orientated towards free trade, a dynamic competition, all these sorts of things. Uh, I ended up going to Oxford and doing my doctorate there in moral philosophy and political economy. And I was very interested always in the connection between ethics on the one hand and economics on the other. And my supervisor was a fellow named John Finnis, who's a natural law scholar, uh, but who also knows quite a bit about economics. But I suppose the, the big shift for me when it came to understanding what I wanted to do and the sorts of ideas I was interested in one of the big things was being made to read at a very young age uh, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. <clears throat> now that sounds unusual, I suspect, to a lot of people, but I took to it immediately because I understood that this wasn't just a book about economics, this was also a whole way of thinking about the world, which I think is responsible at least for a lot of why uh, the Anglo-American world is the way it is today. And I was also very conscious that this world was increasingly uh, under threat in many respects, obviously from the left, but in more recent years, as we've mm -hmm. discovered from parts of the right as well, because I think Smith, Smith's Wealth of Nations and the corpus of his, of his materials, which I'm, as I'm sure you know, it's really uh, what I call a, a civilizational vision, a civilization mm -hmm. of, to use Smith's phrase, natural liberty. And that, I think, is a very powerful way of looking the world. I think it explains, certainly, America at its best. And I came and started working in America 20, 22 years ago now. I worked a long time for the Acton Institute. And then more recently, I moved to the American Institute for Economic Research. But over the past, I suppose, five years, I've been very focused as have a lot of us, I think, upon the emerging 
critique, and I would argue threat, that's being that's coming from the left, but also segments of the right now, when it comes to what it means to have a free economy, but also what it means to live in a free society. And I think a lot of us have been shocked by how quickly people we thought and organizations we thought were reliable on things like free markets and limited government and American constitutionalism have uh, are no longer so, so solid about those things anymore. Uh, but I also thought as a consequence of this, and this is a lot of what the book is about, that that if we're going to make the case for markets today, we have to be aware that a lot has changed over the past 50 years. As I often say, we're not living in the 1980s anymore, which was a very influential gener- uh, time for me because the world was seemed to be moving in our direction, right, in many respects. But clearly it hasn't been for a while. And I do think that that means that those of us who believe in markets and limited government need to recalibrate our case for the realities of the 2020s. That's not about giving up any of the principles, far from it. But we need to be articulating them and explaining them in light of contemporary conditions. And that's turned out to be, uh, it's, it's, it's a great exercise, it's a fun exercise, but it's also very challenging because I don't think we can underestimate just how many people have slipped away from this particular vision of freedom and America as a whole. So I'm really curious about uh, about this idea of recalibration. Um, what what do you think the uh, I guess we could talk about it in terms of the differences between 1980 the 1980s when I grew up as well uh, and today we could talk about shifts in understanding or you know improvements in our improvements in our understanding um, of uh, how economies work and um, uh, that aren't at odds with the with the principles, uh, but we do we have more context now. So talk talk a little bit about what you mean by recalibration. Well, for example, I think we need to recognize that there are an entire there's an entire generation of people who have grown up. So these are people younger than you and I, whose experience is not that of the 1980s and 1990s. It's the experiences of 9/11. It's the experiences of financial crisis, the Great Recession, uh, the experience of a Federal Reserve that keeps pumping money into the economy, um, the experience of the COVID and the shutdown, the effective shutdown of the American economy for long periods of time by the federal government. It's a period in which uh, views about China have shifted dramatically because remember in the late 1990s, There was this enormous hope that if China would enter the WTO and uh, start to embrace the rules of liberal order, so to speak, at least in terms of trade and things like that, that this would have spillover effects in China. That that clearly hasn't happened. So those contextual things, I think, don't obviously, I think, affect any of the principles, whether Mm -hmm. it's entrepreneurship, the, the superiority of free trade to protectionism, the, the perpetual importance of dynamic competition. But we have to keep in mind that there's a, there's a large segment of American opinion, particularly, I guess, below the age of 40, whose experience of these things is just very different from ours. And we need to explain to them things like, look, if you want to understand things like the financial crisis, 
you, it's, it, there's a lot of things about that that are actually caused by bad government policy. Uh, or things like, well, maybe we did misinterpret or make some mistakes policy-wise when it comes to how we deal with China, but that doesn't mean we have to give up the case for free trade and suddenly turn inwards and engage in this almost neo-isolationist understanding of the world, economically speaking. So I think that's a lot of what the recalibration is about. The second part is I often think that those of us who believe in markets, um, free market people are exceptionally good at policy. Where I think we've fallen down at different points is on making the normative case for these mm -hmm. things. Hmm. Um, and that's partly because those of us who think about things economically a lot, that's we tend to drift in that direction, right? But I think if you look at the best free market economists, they've always understood that you need to make this very strong normative case because material prosperity will be very attractive to a lot of people, but it's not necessarily going to change hearts and minds when they come to think about what they really believe in, what they what they want to devote their lives to. And that's why I so we think I need I think we need to think about how we make this case for markets normatively attractive. And I think that's especially important given that we, given that we have people on the left and the right who have no hesitation about articulating a very powerful normative message, albeit one that I think is dreadfully wrong. I, I completely agree with all of that. And I, I want to ask you to connect that to, um, you, I mean, you talked about your exposure to Wealth of Nations at a very early age. I'd like you to connect it to uh, the normative case to um, Smith's other great work, much less discuss the theory of moral sentiments. How, do you think that that actually is... Uh, well, just tell me what you think about it and whether you think that that is the heart of the normative case. It's certainly, it's certainly a strong part of the normative case. And the reason I say that is this, is that you're probably familiar that in the 19th century there were a lot of German scholars, of course German scholars, right, <laughs> who, uh, who suddenly decided that there, there was this tremendous gap between the wealth of nations and the theory of moral sentence. Yes. Was, das de, de, Adam Smith problem. Yeah, das Adam Smith problem, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I've, I, I always thought that's very strange. I just don't see someone like that as rigidly compartmentalizing their, their mind at all. But nonetheless, uh, yeah. it, it, it sort of, that sort of took root, I think, in a lot of people's minds and the way that they think about Smith. That he's got his moral theory over here and his, his economics is something completely different and the two really have nothing to do with each other. I don't think you can read these two texts separately. You really need to read the theory of moral sentiments first and then read The Wealth of Nations. And in fact, he talks about, for example, um, concepts of self-interest in the way that he talks about them in The Wealth of Nations, that's all there in the, in the theory of moral sentiments already. And it's a very subtle, delicate treatment of a topic which I think he was exceptionally good at explaining what this actually meant and what it didn't mean. So my point is that when you look at these texts, the corpus of Smith's texts, and even by, you could even say by extension, the whole Scottish Enlightenment experience, of which I'm a big fan and I know you're a fan as well, they're really in the business of creating a type of civilization. 
And it's very different Enlightenment experience to what you saw happening across the Channel in France and in lots of continental Europe. It's a very, very different, um, a very different understanding of what Enlightenment meant. It did not mean the sort of deep, radical shift away from the past. It meant a certain degree of continuity, but it also meant this emphasis upon improvement through allowing people to be free and creating contexts and institutions that uphold that freedom, but also encourage people to pursue virtue. And that's the other part, I mm. think, of the, mm. um, the the way that these people thought about the world, which I think we need to try and rehabilitate. So it's really a civilizational outlook, and at the heart of it of, is commerce. Commerce mm. is something that they thought was was a sign of civilizational development. You know, they had this sort of stage theory of history, and they said commerce is really the point in which more and more humans over time really start to flourish as they ought in a way that they couldn't in the conditions of a feudal society, let alone the conditions of the Greece and Rome or even before mm. that, right? So uh, that, I think, is part of the message that those of us who believe in the free society and free markets need to wrap our case up in because... In fact, I gave a lecture about this yesterday saying something like, look, if all we offer is more staff produced more efficiently for more people, well, okay, that's good, yeah. <laughs> but, but no one's going to die for utility. Mm. <laughs> people will, will put their lives and uh, their sacred honor, as our founders said, on the line for lots of things, but not so much that. But they will put it on the line for when they think things like the free society the society in which this commercial civilization is given the chance to flourish, they will take that seriously and will try and explain that this is really the alternative that we're offering to the collectivism that's coming from the left, but also the collectivism from the right. So that sounds to me an awful lot like uh, a, 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 um, a vision of free markets and, uh, and economic freedom gen more generally that is rooted in a certain concept of the human person and the human person's dignity. Yes. Um, is it, do you agree with that? Absolutely, because uh, I think one of the things about a free society and a commercial society in markets is that they reflect certain truths, universal truths about who we are as people. One is that we're free, that we have reason, we have free will, that we're individual, we're social, we're creative, uh, but we're also fallible as well. Mm. And mm. when you take all those things together and you realize, okay, if we're free, we have reason, we can make choices, we're individual, we're social, we're creative, and we're fallible, and that sort of starts to rule out all sorts of political and economic systems because collectivist systems certainly don't take freedom, reason, <laughs> creativity, mm -hmm. or individuality very seriously. And so when you, when you think about it that way, it's very much an argument based upon certain truths, let's call them anthropological truths, about right. who we are as human beings. And societies and economies tend to go wrong when they deny those sorts of things. So if we pretend that we're capable of uh, perfection in this world, if we go down the path of utopianism, then we usually end up with concentration camps and gulags, right? 
And so I think that's one of the beauties of the, the free society and commercial societies is it takes all that very seriously. And the person, I think, who really talked very convincingly about this in the 19, late 1970s and 1980s was someone who worked at the American Enterprise Institute for a long time, who, of course, was my friend and your friend, Michael Novak. He wrote mm. extensively on this. And I always liked the way that he grounded all this in the foundations of what a human person is. Because if, if you start there, it's really hard to go wrong. Mm. You were talking about trying to make this case in language that goes beyond more and better stuff, right? Mm. And that more and better stuff is a side effect, a, uh, a an externality if you will, of this view of the human person. And I think that, that it, it's really interesting to me the way that you, you were talking earlier about the sort of um, the right version of the left utopianism, the right version. They would say that they have that anthropology, that that's actually where their... Um, their sociology and their um, their political prescriptions um, rest is yes. in the dignity of the person. Uh, and uh, so I'd like to hear you unpack why they are, in fact, incorrect in that. I mean, many of them, Patrick Deneen, Sorbamari, uh, Chad Peck, uh, Pecknold at Catholic University, these are ardent defenders of of human dignity uh so what what are they missing in your view there's a couple of things one is i i think they're they're less strong on the freedom side of things than i would be because i think they're more willing to constrain that in, in ways that i think actually would not achieve the greater virtue that they want to see in people i think it would actually <laughs> become very counterproductive in that regard but I think the other issue is something that, that is, is used a lot in um, not just those circles that you just mentioned, but broadly speaking with these uh, market-skeptic conservative, let's call them mm -hmm. that. So some of the nat national conservatives, integralists, etc. It's the way they talk about the common good. Mm -hmm. The common good is something they bring up all the time. And their sense is that the common good is something that is essential for the flourishing of many as many people as possible in society, and that the state is the organization that is primarily responsible for realizing this. And that translates very quickly into, okay, that's why we need protectionism, that's why we need industrial policy, that's why we need specifically tailored policies that will help particular demographic groups or regions of the United States to, to be in a better economic and social situation than they presently are. Now, I happen to think that the, the idea of the common good is a very old idea. It goes back to the world of Greece and Rome. We have um, um, uh, medieval and, and enlightenment versions of what this means, even something like the general welfare, which is in the preamble to the Constitution. You could even interpret that as having a type of common good ring to it. <clears throat> but I think what they're missing is that the common good of the political order is by definition a limited common good. It's not about the 
flourishing of every individual in every community in every place at every point in history, which is the idea of the common, the universal common good writ, writ large, as uh, people like Thomas Aquinas would have, would have talked about it. The common good of the political community of a sovereign state like the United States is those conditions that help people to flourish. And to flourish, you need to make free choices because you can't realize mm. virtue. You can't become a good person or a bad person for that matter, right? You can't acquire virtues like prudence, courage, temperance, all these things that are, I think, essential for a free society. And you find people like Adam Smith talking about extensively. You can't realize these things unless you have the capacity to make free choices. And their conception of the common good, I think, would lead the state to effectively shutting down whole spheres of activity in which I think it's quite legitimate for people to make free choices about what they do. And you have to accept that some people are going to make bad choices. Some people are going to do bad things. And you have legal systems and, and things like rule of law that take care of these problems to, insofar as they can. So I think the conception of the common good, I think, is, is very much central to some of the errors that they make in this area. And I, I, I tend to say, look, yes, I think there is a thing called the common good, but for the political community, it's limited. It's limited to mm. the flourishing, mm. the conditions, mm. those conditions that enable people to flourish. And guess what? The state is not responsible for all those conditions. Families are responsible for a lot of those conditions. What people, people like Tocqueville call the intermediate associations, they are responsible for many of these conditions. And the state has certain responsibilities, but they're limited. So things like property rights, rule of law, upholding mm. contracts, these very important things, mm. not, not at all, um, if you think about it, they're not minor things at all. Things like national defense are not minor things. But the common good is a limited common good when it comes to a political community. And that's where I think they make some significant errors because it opens the door to the dimin radical diminution of freedom in the name of the collective. And, and ends up... Uh, it ends by, uh, as you suggested, uh, sort of coercing uh, that which should be freely chosen. And coercion is a, is a big problem. And it's something that we've been more used to on the left uh, in, the, in recent history than on the right. Um, so is, is this a problem? I mean, so to channel this perspective a, a little bit and just say, well, you know, we are in we're in dire shape uh, as a society. Uh, we because uh, this is I, my take on on Deneen's argument that you know uh, liberalism actually undermines the foundations of uh, its, its own foundations. It's eating itself, uh, and uh, we're we're headed for a cliff. Um, what do you, I, I guess my question is is this something that's real? Is it catastrophizing? Is it, uh, what, what do you think it is? Well, I don't think anyone who looks at the United States today would say that everything is wonderful. We obviously mm -hmm. have some significant, um, certainly some cultural problems. Uh, I, I'm not sure the economic problems that are claimed are as extensive as what are being portrayed. I think some of your colleagues actually at AEI have done a good job in showing that actually economically speaking, putting aside COVID, putting aside 2020, 2021, 
um, things have been economically improving across the board, for, including for um, the groups that some of these conservatives claim to be concerned about, which are blue-collar working-class people. But that said, we do have things like um, family breakdown, marital breakdown, drug use, um, uh, declining participation in intermediate associations. I mean, that's, I think there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that. And so the question you have to ask is, okay, well, what's responsible for that? And to what my response is, I don't think John Locke and Adam Smith have very much to do with this. Because that's sort of the argument you get from some people on the right who basically say, this is the, as you say, the liberalism eats itself argument, that the, the conclusions that you get, you get John Locke, James Madison, and that leads you to drag queen hour at the local children's <laughs> library. But that's sort of the argument. I mean, it is funny. I mean, I, I, I laugh. I, I use that line and people laugh. But I say, but here's the thing. A fair number of, of the people who are arguing uh, along these lines, that's sort of what their position is. Mm-hmm. And I will say things like, don't you think the cultural upheavals of the late 1960s have something to do with this? Don't you think that... Um, the progressives' faith in the state to engineer all sorts of things has something to do with this. Um, don't you think the um, the decline of religion in certain parts of American society has something to do with this? And I don't see economics as actually having very much to do with any of those types of things, uh, let alone... <clears throat> Liberalism, And I think and this is where you get into the territory of, well, what do you mean by liberalism? Well, if you mean by liberalism um, the late 18th century modern Scottish Enlightenment, the American founding, uh, the, the framing of the Constitution, all these things, and if you, that's what you mean by liberalism, well, I just don't see any connection between that and some of these problems that we have today. Uh, so, so I think that in the end... The, the liberalism argument is a bit of a straw man, and it's, it's, it's a way of avoiding talking about some deeper problems to which I don't think government intervention actually has very much to contribute in terms of fixing, because I think these are bottom-up problems that require fixing. And I don't think, for example, the state can do that much when it comes to fixing things like... Um, uh, the breakdown in marriage rate and things like that, which have social and economic consequences, but I don't think liberalism has that much to do with these sorts of things. So, uh, coming at this from a, a another angle, um, this is not the first time that uh, Western society has gone through this deep questioning right. of uh, of liberty and markets and um yeah and i think that probably you know the 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 previous chapter was something we could probably look at from sort of uh 1918 forward to um through the second world war would you agree with that yes i mean it's it's very clear that if you go back certainly through modern western history we've had periods of severe questioning of liberty. And you mentioned the nine, you basically there were referring from 1914 to 1945, sort of the great long, long war that continental Europe went through. And societies went from being, at least a, a good number of Western societies went from being pretty free societies 
to being societies in which the state became pretty omnipresent in economic mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. in which we saw the breakdown of civil society, um, in which we saw the rise of movements on the left and the right pushing for more state intervention, and a fair amount of populist rhetoric associated with that, which which often goes along with some very negative rhetoric about particular groups in society. So we've been through this before. Uh, I think in the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a lot of questioning about freedom. I mean, there were people who were actually arguing, I think the Soviets are going to win. At the very point that we now know that the threat from the Soviet <laughs> They were about Union, to collapse. They were about yeah. to collapse. Um, we had in the late 1970s, remember Jimmy Carter's Malay speech and, and all these sorts of things. <clears throat> and then very quickly in the 1980s, things changed very dramatically. So <clears throat> I, I think we have pendulum swifts, shifts mm -hmm. that go on at particular points in time. And at the moment, we're in a pendulum shift towards away from freedom and towards much more willingness on the part of the left and the right to entertain top-down state orientated approaches so it's not like but it's it's always a little different though right because it's not like they're they're actually proposing um, real existing socialism one of the things I say in my book is that they're really po pointing to state capitalism so they're not talking about we're going to abolish private property rights, we're going to shut down markets, we're going to destroy Wall Street. Those things will all be there. But they want the state playing a type of guiding role, both at the macro level but increasingly at the micro level of the economy. So that's why I call it state capitalism. And it's fascinating to look at some of the policy proposals of people who you would think have really nothing to do with each other, ranging from, say, Marco Rubio on the right to Elizabeth Warren on the left, if you look at some of their economic policies, they're not that different. Mm. So that shows there's a type of coalescing on the left and the right around some of this, this, this greater confidence that we can and should use the state to try and deliver better outcomes because liberty isn't doing it. So let me, let me um, I, for the sake of argument, let me press into that a little bit because mm -hmm. we have had... Uh, we, we rely on our political institutions to um, ameliorate uh, and um, sort of integrate into our national life uh, these discontents. Uh, not, and I'm not talking about persons, I'm talking about ideas, you know, that you know, something's not right we're, and there's a feeling that there's suffering abroad in the land and we need to do something about it. And we have political institutions, um, and it's not just the New Deal. I mean, this is, uh, in my view anyway, goes, you know, sort of back to Whig philosophy of, you know, we improve, you know, internal improvements mm -hmm. and, you know, land-grant universities, Lincoln and, the, <laughs> you know, the, the settlement of the West. I mean, mm -hmm. big, big-time government interventions mm -hmm. in order to... Uh, in order to... Uh, uh, and then, of course, the New Deal... Uh, great, society. Well. great society great um, society with this uh, you know uh, people who care about liberal democracy um, were probably I know in the case of the New Deal they certainly were and in the case of the great society they certainly were very concerned about these extensions of government power into the private sphere of American life and um, uh, 
and looking, but looking back on it, at least from my perspective, I, you know, the New Deal wasn't perfect. It created, you know, it, it, it didn't work in the in the way that uh, <laughs> that anybody expected. But it it sort of got helped to get the country through the, these transitions. So how how are you? How do we reconcile that? You know that under under stress. Democratic societies figure out ways of ameliorating and adapting um, that may not be perfect from our perspective as uh, uh, you know adherents of classical liberalism, but they kind of are necessary, right? Well, I think if you look, so basically it comes down to a couple of things. One is that um, in the short term, you could say, okay, the New Deal injected a type of sense that, okay, if everything's not hopeless, maybe there's a way out, and maybe we have some new options here. But in the long term, we know it didn't work. It didn't certainly didn't mm-hmm. work economically. We yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. And it also lumbered us with um, <laughs> so much of the administrative state that once that's put in place, it's extremely difficult to to take down, as, as we right. know. It's right. okay, one but, of the criticisms right, let, we hear, right? Let me, let me just jump in on that, though, mm-hmm. and say, uh, if your choice was between uh, uh, we were we were spared this choice by an assassin's bullet, but if you were if your choice was between FDR and Huey Long, mm-hmm. uh, you want FDR, right? Yeah, and this is this very similar, um, a similar logic I think you can find in the thinking of someone like John Maynard Keynes. So in the 1920s and 1930s, he was proposing ideas for the government to do different things in the economy, and he ended up in 19, you know, in the 1930s producing a whole book saying, well, this is how we completely, com- completely rethink economics <laughs> and, uh, and effectively to, to make this a sort of permanent feature of Western societies. Mm. So, and when you look back on that, you can say, okay, well, if the choice is between that and the complete disintegration of society or worse, the rise of a someone like an Oswald Mosley, mm. or if you go across the, the channel to Germany and Italy, Austria, Spain, and Italy, the, the choice is, is not great. So I, I think on one level we can say, okay, it's understandable why mm. people make these choices. But it's also the case that we should be very open-eyed about what that can mean in the long term because in the long term it's bequeathed us these experiments these these provisional these provisional um, adaptations to immediate circumstances have left us with some significant long-term problems and, and mm. QE is a good example of that right yeah right it's a yeah. very good example we we can't seem to get out of this loop now about right. so reliant upon the Federal Reserve to do things that I just don't think the Federal Reserve should be doing so that's one thing. The second thing I would say is that there's also an alternative. There's alternative examples we can look to. So one, for example, is in the 1840s in in Europe, you had famines, you had banking crises, you had major economic problems. But the response of societies like Britain and other countries to these problems was not to sort of turn to the state. It was much more to turn to freedom, 
to embrace liberty as a way of dealing with many of these particular problems. So the crisis of uh, globalization that happened in the 1840s, or even in the 1970s, right, the reaction predominantly was not, let's turn to the state, let's, let's turn to intervention. Instead, we had things like the Corn Laws Act being passed mm -hmm. in the 1840s, which opened up Britain to free trade, unilateral free trade throughout the world. Or in the 1970s, the response to severe problems inside the body politic in the United States it turned out to be not so much intervention, but uh, a withdrawal of government from a lot of aspects of life. And this began under Jimmy Carter. We forget that. Yeah. Remember yeah. airline deregulation? De de deregulation, yeah. Right. And he, he yeah. appointed Volcker. It wasn't Reagan who mm. appointed Volcker. Mm. So mm. my point is that it's completely understandable why these things happen in, in circumstances. People make choices that have very long-term uh, negative prop, uh, results. You've got to be careful about making judgments about people because we, we weren't there. What would we have done? I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. But we should also know that there are alternative ways in which societies have reacted that have not mm -hmm. produced mm -hmm. these types of long-term problems. And alternative ways that our society has reacted is yes. what I hear you saying. Um, right. the, uh, you know, nobody holds up the 1970s ever as any kind of model and having lived in the 1970s I, I can kind of understand that but I, I, it's a very good point uh, that you know the the sort of the the ground of the re, of the recovery was really tilled in the 1970s and, and bore fruit in the 1980s and 1990s so uh, yeah I, I, it's a it's a really good point so Let's try to bridge this conversation about sort of the different kinds of responses, um, you know, that you can have a state-driven intervention uh, a la the New Deal or the Great Society to ameliorate some of the tensions that arise when, um, when the economic system uh, is malfunctioning. Uh, uh, you can have that. You can have the 1970s, um, you know, sort of model of let's let's try not doing stuff, <laughs> you know, let's try deregulating. <laughs> let's try, uh, turning off the taps at the federal reserve. Let's, I mean, Nixon was the arch archetype of, uh, uh, of sort of, uh, interventionist, um, new deal Republicanism, I guess. Uh, and, yeah, 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 We're yeah. No, I, I, now, unfortunately, I do remember that. <laughs> um, so, one of your prescriptions is to think about the United States as a commercial republic with certain um, parameters on its politics, its or well, its political economy, basically. Uh, so, talk about what you mean by uh, a commercial republic and how that you know provides a, a different frame thinking about what's doable, what's achievable, what's desirable for the United States. So when we talked a lot about the normative dimension of these things before and how um, at least some people in the free market world have not been so good at that or haven't talked so much about that or sometimes don't want to talk about those sorts of things. That's, and it seems to me that if we're going to advance the case for free markets and limited government in the contemporary conditions, then we need to sort of make sure that people understand that we, we like these things and we believe in these things because we think they're good for America and for Americans. 
which is a little different from some of the rhetoric that was used in the 1980s and 90s, or certainly in the 1990s, where it was much more about sort of um, perpetual peace. Right. Um, everyone's going to become liberal Democrats and embrace free economies and all this. So, so my point is that we have to locate the case for markets and limited government and who we are as a people. And I think there's no other place that we can really do that than in the founding and the founding documents, because that's where ultimately I think Americans find their identity as Americans. I think the, um, the historian Gordon Wood, who's a progressive, has, has basically argued that this is where Americans find their source of identity. And even today, we're constantly looking back and referring to these mm. things. These, are the, these have weight for us. They carry... They have legitimacy for us. And so one of the things I argue in, in my book is that in the last chapter is that we really need to try and make a case. But the case for markets, for entrepreneurship, competition, uh, for free society is really the fulfillment of this type of vision. And if you go back and you read the Federalist Papers or you read Washington's farewell address, there's no doubt in my mind that this is what they have in mind, a commercial republic. What do they mean by that? Well, the word commerce obviously means entrepreneurship, trade, domestically and internationally, lots of competition, lots of opportunity, uh, the government playing a subsidiary role, property rights, rule of law, all those good things. What's the republic part? The republic part is the idea that it's a, it's a, it's a republic in which citizens are participating in the political process, in which decisions are made in in clear procedurally defined ways as to so as to stop either dictatorship from by the few or craziness from the many but it also means embracing certain certain virtues classical virtues the greek and roman type of virtues the commercial virtues that people like smith and other scottish enlightenment thinkers talked about and also religious virtues as well and if you read washington's farewell address it's a beautiful expression of what this vision of what America is meant to be. Now, we don't live in the 1790s. We live in the 2020s. A lot has changed. America is um, less white, less Protestant, um, less religious in some respects. Um, uh, women play a much bigger role in society. Slavery doesn't exist anymore. So there's a lot that's changed. But I think the point of the idea of a commercial republic is that it's distinctly American, but it also embodies universal principles, yeah. which is really, I think, the genius of America, right? Because it is which is why everybody wants but to also come universal. Here, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. No one wants to migrate. Have you noticed? No one, for all the praise of China, we hear. Mm -hmm. I don't see mm -hmm. many people wanting to migrate there. <laughs> so I think this is very important because it certainly is a way of recasting. The argument for free markets and limited government in America in a way that makes it very clear that economic nationalists and collectivists on the left and the right do not have a monopoly on patriotism. It's not like they are the only ones who care about the country. If free marketers can show and make this case that they care about the country just as much as anyone else, and they can wrap these things up in this particular narrative of what America is meant to be and its clear roots in a particular identity, I think that's a very winnable normative message. I couldn't agree more. Samuel Gregg, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation. I think it's 
one of the best that I've ever had on this podcast. Uh, and uh, I can't recommend the book highly enough um, to listeners. Um, please go and pick it up. We'll put it in the show notes uh, and uh, everybody should read it and think hard about your arguments. Look forward to having you back again. Thanks, Brett. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.